Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. But for today, as we just read, we're in Mark chapter 8, halfway there, uh, looking at verses 11 through 26. And here's what I want us to uh, kind of use as a frame for what we just studied and what we're going to look back through again this morning. Uh, the way of Jesus that we observed here in Mark 8 is the way that Jesus enlightened. You can write that down each week. It's a different aspect of the way of Jesus. And this morning, we're looking at the way Jesus enlightened. Now, if we're going to use the word enlightened, we're going to have to define it, not just because it's got a few syllables and it's a bigger word, but because it's, it's an academic word um, and it can mean a lot of different things. So when we talk about Jesus's work of enlightenment that he's doing here in Mark 8, we want to use a, a definition of the biblical words that are used of enlightened in the scripture. Uh, the word enlightened is used a couple different times. Um, one of my favorites is in the Psalms, where uh, the psalmist is describing the scriptures as being sufficient and pure to enlighten the eyes. And that's what we're getting at. Uh, in, in the Bible, anytime the word enlightened is used, it's used almost in, in unison with seeing and vision. And so you have a, some, some consistent themes. Uh, I think of Ezra chapter 9 is a good example of this. In Ezra chapter 9, the people of God are at a point of great hope. A- after years of running from God, committing idolatry and distancing themselves from him, there is this remnant of faith that arises almost like every generation. Things get really dark and the light of the work of God can seem to be pretty dim. But all it takes is a couple people who are willing for God to bring a fresh fire, a fresh light upon them again. And you have this revival that happens in the people of God in the book of Ezra. And it it describes it for a little bit. This is kind of a synopsis of it, of the work that God is doing for these people, his people who have wandered from him. They said, and now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God. This is something I'm desiring for our generation, that, that for a little while, some grace would be shown from the Lord our God to give us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God, here's what what it's for, that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. What a beautiful vision. Amidst all the revival that we want God to do, there is a desire that says, God, help us see clearly. Do we not live in times where there is a massive need for enlightenment, for the eyes of understanding to see clearly? Clearly, we, we all see things our own way. We all, there, there's no shortage of perspectives and opinions, and there's no shortage of opportunities to broadcast those unsolicited perspectives and opinions. You know, pick your platform, right? Um, pick your news station. And like the people of Israel in the time of Ezra, there's a need for God's people to cry out and say, God, in this time, would you give us eyes to see? Would you make sure that we of all people see things clearly? that we see your truth, that we'd be enlightened. So here's kind of from some of these scriptures. Here's a definition of enlightened. This is the work that we see Jesus up to, and we see God up to all throughout the scriptures with his people. Uh, To be enlightened is to have the eyes of understanding opened to see and know the truth. Have you been enlightened? That's my question for you this morning. Have the eyes of your understanding 
been opened to see and know the truth that is in Jesus. I can think back on a time in my life where I went from being educated in the Christian faith growing up in the church to being enlightened, where the eyes of my understanding were open to see and know that Jesus is not just some historical character with some followers, but the truth of who he is. Enlightened, to have the eyes of our understanding open to see and know the truth. Now, this work, the work of Jesus to do this for humanity, is, listen closely, it's one of the main descriptors of Jesus' ministry as the coming Messiah uh, found in both Isaiah 61 and Luke chapter 4. I like the Luke 4 reference because this is where Jesus quotes the scripture about himself. He shows up to the Bible study in his own hometown, where we've talked about this, like the one place that Jesus could not do a great work was in his hometown, where he was just like the brother of these boys and these girls, and he was the son of that guy, and he was the carpenter Jesus. And so there was like this dishonor for Jesus in his hometown, and that actually prevented Jesus. The Bible says that he was unable to do a great work in his hometown because that familiarity bred contempt, and they were like, nah, we're not here to welcome what you have to give. Um, nonetheless, Jesus still showed up at the Bible study, and he got up in front of everyone. He opened the scriptures, and Jesus began to read about his ministry. In Isaiah 6, here's what Luke tells us. Jesus read this scripture. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Here's Jesus' ministry, the anointed one, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Jesus comes to set free those who are imprisoned. He brings liberty to the captives. This is all that Jesus does. If you're like new to the Christian faith, you're like, what's Jesus up to? What's this whole Jesus thing? This is the Jesus thing. I'm not sure what it's become. This is the Jesus thing. Preaching good news to those who haven't heard any for a while. Bringing healing to those whose hearts are broken. Has your heart been broken? Jesus wants to heal your heart and comfort your heart. Are you bound? Are you enslaved to your depression, to your anxiety, to your troubles, to your fear, to your sin? Are you enslaved to religion? Are you, are you enslaved to a form of God that has no real substance to it? Well, Jesus has come to set you free from that. He comes to set the captives free. And then I love this beautiful expression. He comes to bring recovery of sight to the blind. And it goes on there talking about his liberty to those who are oppressed and what he's come to proclaim. I love this. He come to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. In other words, the time has arrived. Jesus is here. It's time to be free. And it's time to see. It's time to see. Why? Jesus is here. You can see now. Anyone who's blind has the opportunity to see. Now, Jesus certainly does this in a physical sense, doesn't he? Like, Jesus, he heals everything. He heals all sorts of brokenness, all sorts of problems, both emotional, oppressive, spiritual issues. And reading the Gospel of Mark, Jesus shows up in the face of some severe physical ailments, the kinds that that doctors have completely, you know, lost hope for. And he brings healing, miraculous healing power to physical ailments. We've seen him heal... um, those who are paralyzed. Last week we saw him heal a guy who was deaf and also couldn't speak. And then here in this passage, we see Jesus do what he said he's going to do. He literally brings recovery of sight to a guy who's never seen 
who can't see. To the extent, now some people think maybe he did see at one point because he knew what trees were. He's like, I see men and they look like trees. It's like, so maybe he's seen a tree before. I don't know, okay? But Jesus opens his eyes. Now, it's great when Jesus does that in a physical sense. It's great when Jesus opens blind eyes, and we're going to look at that. But when Jesus does that in a spiritual sense, that's when hope really arises. You can have your physical eyes opened, listen, and still be blind. With a greater blindness than any physical blindness can cause, a spiritual blindness. You know, a great example of this enlightenment and kind of using both the physical and the spiritual is the story of Paul. You know the Apostle Paul? Before the weekend wrote the song, Paul was blinded by the light. You know that story? On his, on, you know what I'm talking about, everyone, the weekend? Okay, sorry for that reference. But in Acts 9, Paul is knocked off his high horse. He was an enemy of God, an enemy of the Christian faith. And Jesus shows up and knocks this guy off his horse. He's trembling in fear because of, because of who is before him, Jesus, whom he has been persecuting. And Paul has this incredible conversion. His life is transformed because his eyes are opened, right? Now, to, it's really interesting. It's, have you ever read this? It, it, Paul, after this vision, Jesus opens his eyes, but then he makes them blind. Did you ever read that? So for like three days, Paul has these scales on his eyes. And the, the gospel or the, the book of Acts tells us that, that Paul has these scales so that they can actually be removed and he can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the idea there is that God gives Paul these scales as an illustration to the life he's lived without Jesus, but now his eyes are opened. And in fact, one of the, the missions that, Paul, uh, that God gives Paul is his job is to go into the Gentile world and open blind eyes to see the truth. So it's like both that physical and that spiritual. And this is what Jesus comes to do. Jesus comes to open our eyes of understanding to see and know the truth. We see that in history. We see that in the life of Jesus. We see that with Paul. How many of us can say we've seen that in our own lives? I hope we can say that Jesus has opened my eyes. Now here in, in Mark 8, it's interesting, this passage. Um, it's all about sight. And it's kind of like what we saw here was the relationship. Listen closely. In this passage we read that Danny read to us, we saw the relationship between Jesus's work of enlightenment kind of in the face of human blindness. So we're kind of seeing how those are working together. Jesus opens blind eyes, and humans have blind eyes. There's blindness. So let's go back through this and kind of see some of the big ideas of this concept. Uh, the first thing we saw in Mark 8, and you can write this down, is we saw, and what we're going to look at, let me kind of preface it a little bit more by saying that what we're going to look at is we're going to look at three types of blindness, three types of blindness that Jesus dealt with, okay? The first kind of blindness that we saw is a blindness that's willful, a willful blindness that Jesus rejects. Uh, the first type of blindness that Jesus deals with, that he interacts with, is a willful blindness. In other words, a choice to be blind. And Jesus brings rejection towards these individuals. Uh, these individuals are none other than the Pharisees, right? We, we're familiar with them. In fact, one of Je these are the religious leaders of the day who were all about laws and regulation, but they were anything but near to the heart of God and the truth of God and the love of God. Um, they're like the definition of being so close yet so far. <laughs> they, they, they knew the Bible front and back, but they couldn't 
see the Messiah when he showed up right to their doorstep. Um, and, and they were stuck in the sin of, of pride and self-righteousness. The thing that kept them from God was their religion. It was their behavior. The thing that you think, you know, uh, would bring you closer to God <laughs> is what kept them from God, right? Because they, like, looked at themselves and, like, we're good enough for God. We're not like those people, right? And the Pharisees, the, the biggest thing for them, the reason why Jesus was such a big threat is he was like toppling the entire you know, religious monopoly that they had developed. They had their platforms and their position based on these credentials. And Jesus is showing up and he's bringing greater ministry. He's getting greater notoriety. And they're like, this guy's going to take our positions. We don't like this. And, and so one of them, it's interesting, one of the main, so really the Gospel of Mark is like Jesus' relationship with the disciples, the multitudes, and the Pharisees, right? And so all throughout the Gospels, you just see Jesus going toe-to-toe with these homies, these fools, all right? And one of the main names that Jesus gives these guys, one of the, like it's used, I think, more than almost any other, he calls them hypocrites a lot. That's one of his favorites, like, you, you some hypocrites, okay? But another key descriptor he gives of them is he calls them the blind, Calls them the blind. He actually calls them blind leaders of the blind. The only thing worse than a, a spiritual person being blind is leading other blind people. Jesus says, if you do that, you're both going to fall into a what? A ditch. It's not, you're going to right in front of Don Estridge here. That's where you're going to end up, in that sinkhole, okay? So th- they were the blind. But what we see in this passage is that their blindness, it wasn't without choice. It wasn't inevitable. It wasn't a matter of circumstance. Their blindness was willful. It was an issue of the heart, not the issue of the eyes. Well, if I could just see God, I would believe him. That's not necessarily true. (laughs) And we see that theory tested here. The Pharisees come out and look at their posture. They come out to dispute with him. Him who is healing, him who is preaching, him who is working miracles and changing lives. I know what we should do with this guy who is likely from God and is the Messiah. We should dispute with him because we have the corner, you know what I mean, on the religion. And so they they come out to dispute with him. And notice what they're looking for, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. Now, this is a unique sign that they're asking for. Uh, something like that of Elijah. A sign, the, the words, the idea there of a sign from heaven is like, we want something special, like Elijah brought down fire from heaven. Jesus, we, we want to come to you, and we're going to come with this heart posture that says, you're not God. In fact, if you're really God, if you're really the Messiah, we want you to, to bring down some fuego from the skies. Is that proper Spanish? No? Let's just move on, Okay. We want a sign from heaven. Prove, prove to us who you really are. Now, what an what a insane request to bring to Jesus, especially at this point in his ministry where he has done nothing but prove who he is. Jesus, we need a sign from you. We need a, no, we need a special sign. The signs, the living signs walking around us all healed and whole. The multitude of people, the over 5,000 witnesses who just saw you take a Lunchable and multiply it to feed 5,000? That's like three weeks of that joke now. I'll try to come up with a new one, okay? I'm sorry. There are every, listen, every sign is pointing to Jesus. 
Oh, no, we need a special sign. We need a special sign. Now, let me just establish real quick the heart posture that's here. This is not an individual. You might have been here before. This is not an individual that's like, I'm struggling to trust Jesus. I want to. Because of what I've seen. You know what I mean? But I'm doubting. Lord, would you just confirm who you are? That's not this heart posture. This is someone that, listen, they wouldn't see who Jesus is if it was standing before them. And it is. This is someone who's already made a decision in their heart because of what it will cost them. I'm not going to see him. I'm not going to trust him. I am not going to acknowledge the truth. Um, it's a heart posture. Um, Romans 1 actually describes this heart posture in a section that's unpacking God's judgment and justice against sinful humanity. And it's, it's kind of a heavy section, but I want you to see this passage. I want you to think a little bit about the cultural context we find ourselves in. And this is what it says. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Notice this. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I want you to see that idea. It's not that the truth is not obvious. It's not that all the signs don't point to Jesus. It's that I, I, I don't want to acknowledge it because of what it will cost me. So therefore, out of the a hardness of heart, I'm going to suppress what I know is true. Like trying to hold a life raft underwater or trying to hold like a beach ball underwater is the idea I imagine. You have to work to ignore it. You have to work to fight against it because it's true. What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Think of the disciples. God has shown clearly by now that Jesus is the Messiah. But notice this. Since the creation of the world, there's great evidence for us as well. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, that's us, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, that wasn't the issue. It's not that they didn't have the truth or know the truth. It's just that they didn't glorify him as God. They refused to, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's pretty heavy, Seems like unkind, maybe a little, like the language. But that's not the intent. In fact, if you want to know if God is kind to you, I want you to just see the evidence he's put before you that shows his love for you. He's given you every sign to see and know that Jesus is your Savior. The question isn't what you've seen. It's, listen, what you're willing to see. That's the question. <laughs> not have you seen or is there enough to see. It's are you willing to trust him? It, it, there's enough evidence. There's already enough signs. And that's, again, what we see with the, uh, with the, with the Pharisees here. Uh, Matthew's gospel actually gives us a little bit more insight into what Jesus said. You read Matthew, it's a lot longer of a gospel because Matthew includes a little bit more of the conversation. And, and Matthew tells us that when they come to Jesus asking for a special sign, and they weren't trying to believe in him, they were just trying to test him. Matthew uh, tells us that Jesus, before anything, he says this to them. He says, when it's evening... It will be, when it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. So time out. What, what Jesus is describing here is what happens in Florida every time there's a hurricane coming. Like every dad becomes a weatherman. You know what I'm saying? And we really have Mike's weather page on Facebook to thank for that personally. But, um, or we follow Victor. You know, Victor turns into weatherman, right? But it's, it's like he's talking about just cultural ways, and that, this is how we can kind of predict the weather. You see the signs in the heavens, 
And those signs point to what's coming. Jesus goes, you do this with the weather, yet you're a hypocrite because you don't know how to discern, sorry, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Jesus is saying this, listen closely, the issue isn't that there aren't enough signs to prove who I am. The issue isn't a lack of evidence. It's your inability to see what those signs are pointing to because of your unwillingness to trust me. One more time. Jesus says the issue isn't that there aren't enough signs to prove who he is, that there's not enough evidence. The issue is an unwillingness of heart to trust him, an an inability to see what those signs are pointing to. Um, You know, a great illustration of this is a man in the Old Testament named Pharaoh. Sign after sign after sign, evidence after evidence after evidence. Let me just say, um, if you are living this way with this heart posture towards Jesus, I just want to say this, no sign will ever be sufficient. You'll always need more. You, if, if, it's, if it's only the next sign and wonder to confirm to you who God really is, the, the problem is not the signs and your desire to know truth. The problem is the heart posture that's beginning with unbelief. It's a heart issue. I can't trust. I can't believe. And that's what Jesus saw again in the Pharisees. And, and so he says to them, notice this, look at his response. First thing he does is he sighs deeply in his spirit. He's grieved. This is the second time in two chapters that the Bible teaches us that Jesus, or tells us that Jesus was sighing. He lets out like this, this heart cry, and it's a deep one. It's a deep pain. I mean, I don't, I'd only believe God if I could, you know, who he was, if I could see him in the flesh. And here's God before them, you know, in the flesh. And Jesus is sighing because of the unbelief, because of the heart posture, because of the unwillingness to receive. And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, except for the sign of Jonah, which is the resurrection. Just as Jonah was in the, the belly of the earth for three days, so will the greater than Jonah, Jesus. And he will emerge. He will resurrect. But what an interesting response. Jesus goes, this heart posture is never going to get a sign. Now, what's funny about this is, of course they did. There's plenty of signs. Like, in fact, I'll even, let me go over here for a second and say, like, if you're at a place where you're like, Jesus, I want to trust you, I want to believe in you, will you confirm to me that you're true? Can I tell you that God, like, the Christian faith doesn't react how maybe you've experienced, where you ask hard questions, and it's like, no, don't, we don't, we don't ask that here, okay? All right, don't challenge the Christian faith like that, okay? Don't, just think less. Right? That, that's, that's not the heart posture of, of the Christian faith. I, I genuinely believe this from my own experience and my own experience in ministry that the Christian faith thrives under the strongest scrutiny. The Christian faith always thrives. The more it's tested, the more it's found to be true. That, that's, that's the truth of history and the truth of the present. And if you're at a place in your life where you go, I just want to trust, I want to believe, but I I just need God to, he will. If you're open to see, you will see. You will see. I'm I'm giving that perspective to you as someone who once claimed to be an agnostic. Well, I don't know, I could never know, which is really just a cop-out. It's ignoring what I I can know. I know we've gotten really sympathetic towards agnostics because they're not atheists, you know. We're like, well, at least they're not saying there's no God. They just don't know. 
And, and I think that's a better posture than saying there's absolutely no God. The Bible says that that's actually foolish. The fool has said in his heart. But at the same time, Jesus tells us this. He says, you will know the truth. And it'll set you free. Maybe you don't get the whole truth. Okay? I haven't gotten every puzzle piece yet. Okay? But I have enough pieces to make out the image. Jesus has given me plenty to see who he is to behold who he is in truth. If you're willing to see, Jesus will reveal himself to you. But listen, if like the Pharisees, you refuse to see, you never will. And no sign will be sufficient. So the first relationship we see Jesus in contact with is these men who are in that state. And I just want to remind you with one one last idea about this. Paul tells us that the reason why this is the case, the reason why... um, the biggest issue facing humanity today is rampant spiritual blindness. Paul says is because there's a wicked one who's doing the blinding. He says, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Now, this is like, we've got to remember this is the battle we're facing as Christians, armed with the Spirit of God and the Word of God and, the, and the, the weapons of God. Like, yelling at someone who's blind is not going to help them see. You with me? <laughs> but God can open blind eyes. God can open blind eyes that the enemy has even put a veil over. And we go back to Paul as a great testimony of that. Can I remind you, you go back to your own life. You once were blind and now you see, thanks to Jesus. And that's our hope, that's our perspective in the face of willful blindness. Um, And one last thing about this, you know, I love to spend my whole sermon on point one, okay? Which means the last quarter is point two and three. But um, here's what Paul says to the church, or rather, you know, likely Paul, the author of Hebrews. Beware, speaking of, the, speaking of the church, lest there be in any of you, this is for us now, the same heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Just be careful. Be, be careful that your deconstruction is not a tactic in the hand of the, Emily, of the enemy, not the Emily. Emily Viner, we love you. I just thought of Emily. That's weird. Um, beware. That you, again, that your deconstruction is not some tactic in the hand of the enemy, not to deconstruct your faith, but listen, to demolish your faith. And there, there's a time and place to question what's true, especially if you've been raised in the church your whole life. Question that thing. What, what those people taught you and the, their perspective, like that's a, Jesus actually encourages that when he says, you have heard it said, <laughs> but I say to you. Like check what you've heard. But, but there's this popular posture today for those who have been raised in the church, in the name of deconstruction, most, I'm not, listen, I'm not saying all of it, but a lot of it, is an evil heart of unbelief. That's, we have to remember the, your heart and my heart is prone to depart from the living God. That's where it's headed. That's where we tend to drift. That's why we need to exhort one another daily while it's called today. That's why we need to be in community. Deconstruct in community. Have safeguards around your your process, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Don't underestimate your own proclivity to be deceived. All right. Point two. 
The second thing we see, we've just did two verses. This is going to go great. I promise you'll be out. I promise you'll be out. It says, second thing, write this down. Secondly, we also see, first we see in the Pharisees a willful blindness that Jesus rejects. He can't work with that sort of heart posture. He can work with a heart that's willing to see, but he can't work with a heart that's unwilling, okay? Who's, who says, I don't want to see, even if you, you put it right before me. The second thing, though, we see now the disciples are actually guilty of the same blindness. And that's what Hebrews is talking about. Watch out, church, you can be blind too. And so the next thing we see is the disciples, they have a forgetful blindness, and Jesus faithfully, lovingly rebukes them for it. So I, I love this narrative here. Um, they get into the boat. They depart to the other side of the sea. Now they're going from the east side of the Sea of Galilee to the west side. West side. And then verse 14 says that the disciples forgot to take bread. And they didn't have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Now a couple of things here. First of all, um, this is my biggest fear anytime I'm leaving for like a trip or something is forgetting the ascent. You know what I'm saying? You know that? Like I just have anxiety thinking about it right now. And so, like, I triple check, I create my list, I make sure, because I will forget the thing. You know what I mean? Like, I know I'm going to, so let's try not to. Um, and here are the disciples. We, we see them. They go on their journey, and they forgot. They're forgetful. We know this. They're like us. They're human. And what, what's kind of interesting about this is they forget to take bread. Like, they're leaving a site where Jesus just performed a miracle, and they have bins and bins of miracle bread. You've heard of Wonder Bread. This is miracle bread, okay? That Jesus has multiplied. They've got, they, they probably have like, you know, enough for each person to have their own at least. And they, between the 12 of them, they couldn't communicate and coordinate to bring more than one loaf. Now, that's okay though. It's okay if you trust Jesus is the one who could take loaves and multiply them, right? Like maybe that, you know, that would have been hopeful that that's what they were doing. Oh, we only need one. Why? Because they'll make it 12, like nothing. But that's actually not what's going on. They're, they're, they're disputing among themselves, actually, about their lack and their need, which is even sadder. It's not just sad they forgot bread, but it's sad that they forgot that the bread that they have in their hand was just multiplied. And <laughs> he could do that again. So Jesus is perceiving that they are forgetting not just bread, but the bread of life, who multiplies bread. And so he tells them, notice this, he charges them saying, take heed I love Jesus using like puns and real life things to make spiritual points. Watch out, beware of his followers, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. He warns them in light of their, their doubt. He goes, okay, you, it's not that you have an unwilling heart like the Pharisees, but it's, it's of the same nature if you're not trusting me. You're forgetting who I am. And he uses the idea of leaven, leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Um, leaven, um, Alex Rogan could tell you a lot more, I'm sure, about leaven, Ryan. She makes great bread, right? But uh, from what I understand, okay, I like bread, by the way. Love some bread, okay? With, especially when it's got like a chicken sandwich going on. That's my favorite kind of bread at Chick-fil-A. But the idea of leaven is it's a rising agent, some form of rising agent. So, and all you need is a, it's an ingredient that helps uh, rise, helps, helps bread be bread. And so... What's interesting about the bread and the, the ingredient of leaven is it only takes a small amount, listen, to radically alter whatever it's mixed into. 
Whatever the, whatever the le- form of leaven is, whether it's yeast or some other form, whatever the ingredient, it's a small addition, but it has major implications. And so Jesus is saying, be careful that there's even a small amount of unbelief in your heart. Be careful. Be careful. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees, that small ingredient that the Pharisees have, and, and also that Herod has, which is, a, again, the leaven is their unbelief. And you might today go, you know, I'm not, I'm not like them. I've trusted in Jesus for my salvation. Well, could it be that there's a little leaven in your life of unbelief still? What area of your life have you actually not seen Jesus and you've seen the circumstances? What area of your life have you failed to see what you should see? And you've seen instead what's around you. That's where the disciples are here. And Jesus rebukes them, and he says, be careful. That unbelief can cause some major things in your life. You can trust me here, but if you can't trust me there, that's the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, of course, the disciples, they're just so keen to catch on these guys. And so they reason among themselves, and they go, it's because we have no bread. That's why he's saying that. (laughs) Do the Pharisees have, like, special bread that we need to stay away from? You know? So they're still like living in the physical, (laughs) all right? But Jesus is communicating a spiritual point, and Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, listen, or understand, is your heart still hard? And then look at what Jesus, Jesus says to them. He says, when I broke five loaves, Sorry, I'm behind here. Oh, here it is. Having eyes, and then he says this. He says, having eyes you do not see, and having ears you do not hear, and do you not remember? That's what he appeals to. Have you, lo- have you lost memory of who I am? Isn't that amazing? Have you- Your blindness is a forgetful blindness, because I've showed you who I am. I've provided for you when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000. So how many baskets full of fragments? He says, did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. He said to them, how is it then that you don't understand? So Jesus is lovingly rebuking their forgetful vision. This is, another way of saying this is the disciples have lost sight of what they know to be true in the face of need, in the face of lack, in the face of not enough. And the issue with their sight isn't that they didn't have evidence to point to Jesus' faithfulness, it was their focus. How many of, this is, how many of us struggle with the same thing? It's, it, the question at the end of the day is, where are you looking? What are your eyes fixed on? What are you seeing? What's your perspective? How do you interpret what's going on through the truth of God's word? I love Paul's encouragement in Colossians. He says, as Christians, if we've been raised with Christ, he says, seek those things which are above. Here's where our, our perspective should go. Where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. We've got to fight forgetful blindness. And, and this is easier said than done because sometimes circumstance can cloud our vision of God. Sometimes it gets so dark that enlightenment is is farther than anything else. And it can seem like there's nothing to see. And everything can, you know, especially in the Christian faith, like everything can, can just become trivialized. And it's just like religious platitudes and sentiment. It's just like, and I just want to say to you, like if you are in that place, you've, you've lost sight 
Things are dark. You've lost your grip on truth in some ways. You don't need another trite, you know, trivial answer. You need a vision of Jesus. The real Jesus. Who he really is for you right now. You need him. That, that needs to be your prayer. Jesus, show me who you are. I, I want to see you. I want to see what's true in this circumstance. Help me fix my eyes back on who you are in the face of my forgetful vision. Lastly, the last thing we see Jesus doing is dealing with, write this last one down, a natural blindness that Jesus restores. This is kind of where our hope builds to. We see a, a willful blindness that Jesus rejects. He's unable to open the eyes of someone who's refusing to see, covering their eyes with their hands. You can't do anything there. The next thing we see is a forgetful blindness that Jesus lovingly rebukes and reminds us to remember who he is and what he's done. He wants to give us a vision of himself. And I would just say, like, the, the, this is probably, especially if you've been in the church for a long time, that's probably the most applicable for us. You know, the, the more you see of Jesus, the more you need fresh eyes <laughs> to really see him in truth. But lastly, isn't it just beautiful of Jesus to be dealing with all this blindness? And then what is the next thing he does? He goes and he heals a blind man. That's classic Jesus, right? So the next thing we see is this natural blindness that Jesus brings restoration to. It says, then, right after speaking to his disciples about their blindness, he comes to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him. And Jesus is like, this is going to be a beautiful illustration of what I can do for blindness. And they begged him to touch him. And so he took the blind man by the hand. He led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, he put his hands on him and he asked him if he saw anything. Now back up. We know Jesus tends to heal in peculiar, diverse ways. Here we have the classic spit on the eyes healing tactic. Now, uh, it's interesting. It's, it's possible that this was actually more of a natural and practical method that Jesus was employing for eyes that are, have, are blind and maybe have become close and have experienced some, do you know what I'm saying? Like that, that conjectivitis kind of vibe going on? You got me? All right. Like there's maybe, maybe there needs to be a little bit to clean. It's not like someone can throw him a Dasani and pour, you know what I'm saying? Okay. So this could be practical. I don't think Jesus is just from a distance, like, you know, like launching that thing at this guy's face. Don't, don't, Okay. Don't misread the scriptures. It does say he spit on his eyes. I mean, it does say that. Like, okay. But he could be very practical here. He's taking, listen, remember this, we've been seeing this with Jesus and Mark. He's the shepherd, right? He's coming and he's touching. He's dealing with the problem. He's going to put his very hands, he's going he's gonna to mix his very nature and DNA with this man. And he's going to touch his eyes and maybe he's going to have them be opened physically first. He puts his hand on him and he asks him, okay, now do you see anything? Now I want you to notice this. This is the only miracle that we see of Jesus gradually healing someone. He looked up and he said, I see men like trees walking. So it's like, the disciples are like, I don't think, it, I think it's partially working. You know? <laughs> Can he see men? Yeah, but they're trees. Okay. <laughs> so notice this. Then he put his hands on his eyes again. Sometimes we need Jesus to open our vision more than once. Sometimes we need another touch of Jesus on our eyes. Sometimes the most dangerous thing we can do is settle for some blurry vision. 
some vague idea of what's clear and true and just kind of be comfortable with, oh, I've known this, I've been raised in this. It's that second touch, that fresh touch. He put his hands on his eyes again and he made him look up and he was restored. And he saw everyone as humans now and not trees. He saw everyone clearly. We see a natural blindness that Jesus restores. Now, I think we can all see ourselves in this individual in a couple ways. Number one, can I remind you that like this man, there are areas of your life, there are truths in your life that you and I are naturally blind to. Okay? Even after becoming a Christian, did you know that you still have blind spots? We're exhorted. We saw that in Hebrews. We're exhorted not to think that you see the whole elephant. Not to think that you see the whole thing. You, you don't have perfect 20-20 spiritual vision in and of it yourself 24-7. We're like this man in that way in that we need the touch of Jesus. We are desperate for the enlightening work of Jesus to open our eyes to behold what's true. And, and let me also say, we are in need of this happening regularly. Not being comfortable with one touch this is, you know, in a lot of ways, this is what the Christian faith is about. I once was blind, and now I see. Now God, as long as I live, continue to open my eyes to what's true. And keep me, keep me from looking at worthless things. Keep my eyes from wandering from your truth. God, don't just touch my eyes once and help me see. Help me see again. Help me see more and more clearly. That's sanctification. Just the clarity of your vision of what's true. Increasing. And not settling for some pocket, some narrow vision of God, but saying, God, enlarge my vision. Help me see you as greater than what I'm looking at. Help me see a deeper truth about you that I haven't seen before. God, keep me from complacency of vision. Keep me from the assumption that I see the whole thing. God, open my eyes again. This is the Christian life. Enlighten me. Now, this is a great place to end. And it's Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1. I'll invite the team to come up and close this out. This is actually, um, you know, Paul is the great pastor to a lot of the early churches. And his works and his writings are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And if you, if you really want to know, like, what you should desire in your Christian life, you should usually look at the prayers of Paul. Those things that he's praying for the church, like, they tend to be things that we don't think about enough. And here, I want you to see this. Here is Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus, a Christian church, in a secular moment. Here's what he prays for the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 1. He says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, you've got faith in him, that's great, and your love for the church and his people. Paul says, I don't stop, I don't cease giving thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And here's what I pray, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. This is exciting. This is the Christian faith. Not just coming to church and hearing things and going, oh, I believe that. I'm Christian educated. But when's the last time you sat alone in the presence of God with your Bible opened and said, Jesus, give me eyes to see what you're saying to me. I want, to, I want the spirit of wisdom to know what you're saying. I have your spirit. I, I, can, I can discern truth. I don't need the pastor on Sunday morning to be the only source of, of feeding in my life. I, I need counsel. I need community. But I have your Holy Spirit inside of me. Open my eyes to what's true. The spirit of wisdom and revelation 
unveil true things to me in the knowledge of him. Notice this. Paul prays that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. The eyes of your understanding. What a simple prayer. Jesus, help me see what's true. This is what you do. You enlighten. Paul prays three things for them that you would know not just in an educated way, but in a deep, true way, what is the hope of his calling? Maybe today, that's what you've lost sight of. You have lost sight of hope. And your prayer needs to be, Jesus, open my eyes to see the hope that I can't see in the natural, but is available to me and you. The next thing he says is that you would know what, I love this, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? This is speaking of the church as being the inheritance of Jesus. Isn't that cool? Imagine that. There's a song that we used to sing that says, we are his portion and he is our prize. Remember that song? And Paul's like, I pray that your eyes would be open to see who you are to God. The hope you have in him and the joy he has in you. Maybe you've lost sight of that. God, give me eyes to see the joy you have in me. You're not not bummed out by me. I don't bum you out. (laughs) I don't make you exhausted and annoyed and frustrated. You're just kind of hanging on by a thread. You rejoice in me. With singing, the Bible says. What a love. He looks at you and he has joy in you as his beloved child. Paul prays, I I ask that your eyes would be open to see that in truth in a real deep way. And then the last thing he prays is really beautiful. And what is also the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Paul's like, I pray that as a Christian, you wouldn't become complacent. You wouldn't be content with what you've seen, but you'd have a heart posture that says, Jesus, open my eyes afresh. Give me enlightenment to know in a real way, in a real way, the hope I have in you, the joy you have in me, and the power that your spirit has deposited to my life. Work that power in me. Forgive me for relying on my own power and strength. I fall on you. I come to you to fix my eyes on you. This is the way Jesus enlightened.